service. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about the characters from Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska are insane. One went on an unprovoked killing spree with his 14-year-old girlfriend in 10, excuse me, 11 innocent people died. Another was classified by the FBI as the most violent member of the Philly mob. And those are just the real-life true crime characters from the album. The fictionalized characters were at least as compelling. One shot up a nightclub. Another barely restrained himself from murdering a state trooper. And a third contemplated work as a hired hitman. Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska characters, both the real and the imagined, drew from a deep well of 20th century American desperation. Characters who Springsteen found in conversation with Flannery O'Connor's The Misfit and Charles Lawton's Harry Powell, played so forcefully by Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter. In the hands of the boss, these inspired character studies made for great music. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Jack, Johnny, and Jimmy, MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Maneater by Hall & Oates. And why would I play you that specific slice of she-cat tamed by a jaguar cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on December 17th, 1981. And that's the day Bruce Springsteen sat down to write the title track for what would become one of his greatest albums, Nebraska. On this episode, Charles Starkweather, The Chicken Man, Johnny 99, a meeting in Atlantic City in Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. In December of 1981, Bruce Springsteen was not yet the biggest pop star in America, but he was one of them. Hungry Heart, the lead single from his previous album, The River, released in 1980, went to number five on the charts. It was Bruce's first top 10 hit, and it changed everything. He'd come up from the streets of New Jersey and transformed himself into an American success story. He had, it seemed, everything women, the respect of his peers, 
a new Chevy Camaro Z28, and more money than he knew what to do with. What to do with the money was a new challenge for Bruce. Previously, he'd just haul whatever he'd made into the recording studio and light it on fire. This was the approach taken with the river and his previous masterpieces Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town, released in 1975 and 1978, respectively. But the boss, as Bruce had affectionately come to be known from his role as band leader of the E Street Band due to his early days responsibility of doling out the night's earnings to the rest of the group, the boss wasn't about to make the same financial mistake again. The studio wasn't a playground, a place where you showed up without a plan and let your creative ideas run wild. Doing so was a waste of time. You could quite literally drain your bank account running up a studio tab, blowing hours, days, weeks, trying to find the sound that was in your head. No, the studio was a place of work, a place where you showed up with not only a plan for what you wanted, but with a plan for how you were going to get what you wanted. That's how the great ones did it anyway. Barry Gordy, the head of Motown Records, ran his studio like a factory, and you couldn't argue with the results. If the boss wanted his follow-up to the river to do what that album and his previous records hadn't done, make him money despite their success, then he needed to act like an actual boss and bring his employees, his band, an actual plan, and make his studio run tight like one of those refineries glowing off the New Jersey Turnpike. So the boss bought himself a little tape machine. He had only four tracks, but it was enough. Enough to pre-produce his ideas for his next studio record. He rented a house in Colts Neck, New Jersey. It was modest, somewhat secluded, no frills. He holed up and got down to work with a big Gibson acoustic, a mandolin, a glockenspiel, a harmonica, an echoplex tape delay, and a Tascam four-track. And with a Z28 in the driveway for long rides at night to spur his imagination, Bruce Springsteen had it all. But you know who didn't have it all? The guys in the new songs Bruce was demoing. Guys out in the margins, hand-to-mouth grinders, the refinery workers, the veterans and union humps, the guys the American dream left behind, the runoff. Guys like these. The rhythm from the wipers on the windshield lashed out a hypnotic beat. It did nothing to take his mind off his problems, his debts, debts he owed across the river. His hands gripped the steering wheel at 10 and two. The words love and hate tattooed across both sets of white knuckles. The way out was simple. Do the job, take the cash, pay the man on the other side of the river. She'd understand, she'd ride with him. She'd take that long ride. What was there for the two of them here anymore anyway? You woke up early and punched in before the sun rose. The days inched by just the same as the winters. You punched out into darkness, hit the bar on the arm and paid off your tab on Friday. All weekend you blew steam hard like a work whistle. And Sunday came, you skipped mass, watched the Giants lose and started another tab and did the whole thing all over again on Monday. If you were lucky, Giants would cover, or your pick six would come in and negate their loss. But most times, neither thing happened in Udo. So you'd bet more, the Nets, the Devils, Seton Hall, anything to outrun the Vig and get you back in black. It wasn't a life, 
Not the kind they showed in the movies anyway, or the kind they promised you in school. She knew this now as well as you did. She'd ride with you. She knew the score. Out west, there was gold. Here, you already had a foot in the grave and you weren't quite yet 40. Do the job, a little favor for the man. Take the cash, leave, don't look back, and start over. It was simple. But what if you got caught? Getting caught wasn't so simple. Getting caught would be hard, hard time, and maybe the death penalty. New Jersey abolished the death penalty back in 1965, but what if the man you were gonna do this little favor for decided it had to take place in Philly or on the other side of the river? And what if a cop got popped? What, that was so hard to imagine? Cops got killed in the line of fire in Manhattan every year. But what if the line of fire led straight back to your peace? What then? All he could think about was Starkweather in the electric chair. Charles Starkweather, he and his girlfriend, Carol Fugate. She was just 14, Starkweather was 19. Back in 58, when the news broke, it was everywhere. He was a teenager just like Starkweather and Carol. Starkweather, he had to get out too. So that's what he did, and Carol rode with her man. The duo was 1958's biggest news sensation. Two teenagers on a murderous rampage who cut out from Nebraska. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about my Tacova's cowboy boots. I picked them up while I was in Austin, Texas. I had this event I had to go to that night. It was a formal thing. I had this idea of what I was going to wear, but I needed the one extra thing. And I was like, aha, Tacovas. There's a Tacovas here in Austin. The dudes who worked at the store were great. I found the exact boot I was looking for. This boot is called the Dylan. I got it in midnight black. I wore them to this formal event. I had on a suit. And then tonight, I'm going to wear them with jeans to my son's baseball game. These things are amazing cowboy boots. They're super comfortable, and I can tell already that they're going to last for a long time. A couple things you can do here to check out Tacovis. If you can, stop by your local Tacovis store. Have a complimentary drink or two. The experience is awesome. You can shop all the new styles. You're going to smell that fresh leather in the store. The friendly staff are going to be at your service. They're going to take care of you. They're going to make you feel like a rock star. A lot of the Tacova stores have these leather custom branding services to make your boots truly personalized. They put on regular live music and events. It's an awesome in-store experience. So if you have the opportunity to check out a Tacova store, I highly recommend it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Dot com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. 
For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. In Lincoln, Nebraska in 1959, the executioner didn't wear a hood. Instead, he stood anonymously behind a ragged curtain inside the death chamber, a few feet from the electric chair. The executioner entered the penitentiary without fanfare. To him, it was simple. Do the job, take the money. $200. It went a long way towards supplementing his electrician's paycheck. Outside the prison walls, about 15 teenagers had assembled with beer and soda pop. They blared their radios and listened in for the moment one of their own, Charles Starkweather, was executed by the state. The warden sent some guards out to control the situation, but they mostly just fell into the festivities with the locals. Back inside, Charlie's family said their last goodbyes. Charlie was self-confident to the end, though, cracking gallows humor jokes and flashing that James Dean smile of his. The only thing that betrayed any sense of fear or guilt or remorse was the plastic cross Charlie held in his hand, given to him by the prison chaplain. Charlie occasionally mouthed a few words to himself from the Bible. I will fear no evil. 30 minutes before the big show, at 11.30 p.m., with Charlie entertaining his parents and 35 newsmen and morbid-minded civilians setting in outside the death chamber to bear witness to the execution, something strange happened. The doctor, on site to pronounce Charles Starkweather dead upon execution, dropped dead himself. Heart failure, out of nowhere, right there outside the warden's office. Lincoln, Nebraska, 1959, death was in the air. The clock waited for no one. Dead doctors weren't going to stop the inevitable. At midnight, the murderous Charles Starkweather was going to die. The first murder. A fucking gas station attendant so smug about his job. He was a goddamn gas station attendant, not a doctor. Charlie reckoned he had it coming. Who the hell did he think he was? Charlie wanted that little stuffed bear for Carol on credit and the gas station attendant wouldn't give it to him on account of the fact that Charlie had no job. Well, the hell with him. Charlie was gonna take the bear and then some. The cash from the till and then the gas station attendant's life if he so much as looked at him sideways. So that's what he did. Two shotgun blasts. The first to his stomach put him on his knees and the second to the back of his head put him out of his misery. Charlie Starkweather left the scene confident. Dead men don't talk. 
The next murders, Carol's family. They hated him and his juvenile delinquent looks. His long hair, his denim and dirty t-shirt, the cigarette permanently perched between his lips. But mostly, they hated the fact that he was 19 and didn't have a job. He hated that fact too, but what was he gonna do? After losing his job hauling garbage, the word was out around Lincoln. Don't hire the Starkweather kid. He's lazy, he's a punk, he kills dogs in his spare time. It was a conspiracy is what it was. Charlie knew it. But that didn't make the reality any different. He loved Carol and she loved him. And with that gas station attendant's dead body causing a real life whodunit on the pages of the Lincoln Journal, it was only a matter of time before authorities came looking for Charlie. He and Carol needed to get out of Nebraska and they would shoot their way out if that's what needed doing. Carol's parents wouldn't hear anything about marriage. They assumed Charlie had knocked Carol up. Charlie persisted. He wouldn't leave the subject alone and he wouldn't leave their house until he got their approval. It started with a slap, then another, both from Carol's mother, Marion. Then her father gave Charlie a humiliating kick in the ass on the way out the door. Charlie returned for Carol minutes later, enraged. He fought his way through the kitchen door past Carol's mother. Carol's father, Velda, tried to stop Charlie, but Charlie broke past and made a beeline for Carol's room, where he knew his 22 shotgun was. Carol's father knew it too. He took off after Charlie with a claw hammer. Charlie got to his gun just before Velda attacked him. Charlie spun around and blasted a shell through the old man's head with Carol standing right there next to him. Carol's mother then rushed into her bedroom with a butcher's knife. Charlie reloaded and shot her in the face. Behind them, on Carol's bed, her little two-year-old stepsister wailed away in fear, and Charlie wrapped her in the head with the butt of the gun, but that wouldn't shut her up. So he picked up the butcher's knife and flung it across the room straight into the little girl's abdomen, killing her. It was a massacre. It seemingly sprung from nowhere. But the truth was that there had been a deep reservoir of rage and insecurity brewing in Charlie for some time. He had long been out of options. All he had was Carol and her parents had tried to deny him even that. He had to kill. And now that he had killed, he and Carol had to run. Four dead before they started their long ride and the bodies started to pile up fast. Augie Meyer, one shotgun blast to the head and another for his dog. Charlie hated dogs. See Laura Ward, a wealthy industrialist, his wife Clara and their maid. Charlie killed them all. He said Carol killed Clara, and Charlie also killed the Ward's dog. He snapped its neck with his bare hands. The killing spree brought national media attention to Lincoln, Nebraska, and no one knew where the two teenage killers would strike next. The salesman, Merle Collision, dead. The two kids, Robert Jensen and Carol King, dead, dead. All told, 11 innocent people, dead. The white paint on the walls of the execution chamber was chipping away, a slow decay, the opposite of what awaited Charles Starkweather on the night of June 25, 1959. His head was shaved in preparation for the electrodes that would be attached to his skull. They led him into the chamber, and the executioner avoided eye contact. The 30 or so onlookers couldn't see him, but they could see Charlie, the rock star. The James Dean cool went the way of the shaved hair, but that defiant rebel without a cause attitude was still there in those final moments. When they strapped Charlie to the electric chair, he told them to make him tighter. The onlookers shifted uncomfortably on the other side of the glass, 
One electrode connected to his calf. Another was fastened to his shaved head by a partial leather mask. Charlie closed his eyes and thought of Carol. She was going to avoid the chair. He knew it. He imagined her in her front yard, just like she'd been on that day he first saw her, twirling her baton. It was love at first sight, too real to last. He wished she was right there with him now, sitting on his lap in the electric chair. Charlie opened his eyes. He gave a half-moon smile to the crowd, and the warden gave the executioner the nod. And the executioner gave Charlie Starkweather 2,200 volts. Charlie's head snapped back. His body pressed out against the straps and the executioner gave him another 2,000 plus volts. Charlie's inside sizzled at 210 degrees Fahrenheit. The backs of his eyeballs began to melt from inside his skull and the executioner threw the switch again. Another massive voltage, a third and final time. Charles Starkweather was pronounced dead at 12.04 a.m. The warden cried. Some say it was because the warden lost his friend that night, the doctor who dropped dead earlier in the evening. Charlie had that effect on people, natural charisma for a natural-born killer. That's what they said in the papers anyway, back in the day, back before the love and the hate tattoos. He had that charisma when he was younger, that extra something that caused everyone at the bar to perk up when you walked in caused the foreman to give you some extra shit in that way that only working men bond. It caused her to open her eyes a little wider when you came through the door too. But that was then. That charisma was gone now. Dead like Charles Starkweather. Now, all you had were debts no honest man could pay. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. As far as killers went, Charles Starkweather had no code. He killed indiscriminately. Sure, he'd tell you he had his reasons, but they were bunk. A man needs to know where the lines are, and he needs to do his best to stay within those lines. Otherwise, the world is just chaos. That's in part what Mass on Sunday provided. Not just a reason to believe, but a set of rules to keep you from spinning off the earth. Be it the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, or just living by Christ's example, it all added up to the same thing, a code. The Mafia had a code. It affected most everything its members did. There were rules. You didn't kill women or children, first of all. Not like Starkweather did. Ever. And if you were going to kill, you needed a reason. Good reason. Then, you needed permission. Charles Starkweather wouldn't have lasted 10 minutes in Atlantic City in March of 1980, which was about as much time as Philly mob boss Angelo Bruno had left. Except Angelo Bruno's killers didn't get permission. Angelo's driver pulled up outside Angelo's home on March 20th, only to be greeted by an unsanctioned shotgun blast through the window of his new Chevy four-door sled. Some wise guy with juice called in a favor with the Philly PD and made sure Angelo's body was left untouched in his car for a couple hours. It wasn't much, just long enough for reporters to show up and snap pics. It was a truly gruesome picture. The aging mob boss, the so-called gentle Don, sitting upright in the passenger seat, a bullet hole in his head, his mouth agape in a look of shock, 
If the photo was meant to send a message, it was this. In Atlantic City, war had just been declared. Angelo Bruno was murdered for power, control of the rackets in Philadelphia, which meant control of the gambling profits in Atlantic City. The man who ordered the hit on Angelo Bruno, his own underboss, Antonio Caponegro, was quickly ordered dead by the Mafia's ruling commission for not seeking permission for the assassination of Bruno, for not adhering to the code. Caponegro was found naked, beaten, and crammed into the trunk of a car in the Bronx a couple weeks later. Angelo's job as boss of the Philadelphia Mafia was filled by Phil Testa, AKA the Chicken Man. During his rule, power in Atlantic City was still disputed. The Chicken Man was on borrowed time. March 15th, 1981, the Ides of March. Almost a year to the day from Angelo Bruno's unsanctioned hit. Another group of wise guys decided to color outside the lines with blood from the Chicken Man. 3 a.m., Sunday morning, 2117 West Porter Street, Philly. Phil Testa, AKA the Chicken Man, was returning from a night out at Virgilio's restaurant. Up the road a piece at St. John the Evangelist Catholic Church, the local priest was up early preparing for that morning's early mass. The Chicken Man pulled up his black Chevy Caprice Classic outside his South Philly home. The priest readied his chalice and linen. Across the street from the chicken man's house, a man sat silently in an inconspicuous car. He had his hands on a remote. At the church, the priest spread his hands across the linen, flattening out the square cloth embroidered cross side up. The chicken man walked up the steps to his porch. The man in the car watched and waited. The priest donned his vestment and said a prayer. Wash me clean, Lord, and cleanse me from my sin that I may rejoice and be glad unendingly with them that have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. The chicken man opened his front door and the man in the car flicked the switch on the remote. The priest blessed himself in accordance with his faith in Jesus's unwavering forgiveness of sinners everywhere. And then, When they found the chicken man's body, it had been blasted through a 30-inch hole in his house's front wall, shredded through brick, mortar, and drywall. His lower torso was, as one cop who arrived on the scene put it, completely mangled. Looked like he had went through a paper shredder. Yet somehow, the chicken man was still alive. Unconscious, they rushed him to St. Agnes Hospital where he awoke. He didn't ask for his son. He didn't ask for his priest. Instead, he spit out his final words to the attendant doctor, defiantly telling him, quote, it didn't hurt. The nail bomb they used to destroy Phil Testa's house and to shred his body did the trick. Philadelphia's mob boss was dead. The headline the next day nailed it too, saying, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. Seventy miles up the Jersey Turnpike from Philly in Colts Neck, New Jersey, 
Bruce Springsteen was holed up in his little ranch home writing those words. They blew up the chicken man in Philly last night, and they blew up his house too. The boss was documenting the death of another boss, a documentation that would eventually end up on the UK and international album charts. The writing in homemade recording session in Coltsneck were intended to be demos, a roadmap for the E Street band to follow in the studio in an effort to get down on tape a full-fledged rock and roll follow-up to The River, one that would document the desperate true crimes of Charles Starkweather and the Chicken Man's assassins, as well as other fictionalized characters, all of them on the ropes. But something funny happened along the way. The demos proved too powerful to top in the studio, so the demos became the album. The album we know today as Nebraska. It was both a small production and a large statement. Bruce Springsteen didn't tour to promote the record. He simply released it to great critical acclaim, if not commercial success. And then he went straight back into the studio to record what would become the biggest selling album in his catalog and one of the biggest selling albums by any artist of all time, Born in the USA. The characters on Born in the USA are an extension of the characters Springsteen first sang about on Nebraska. Characters both real and imagined, vivid characters that refused to be ignored. Ralph held the gun to the night clerk's neck. He held him close, his hand gripped around his collar. It wasn't the money in the till he wanted. Like Starkweather, 22 years before him, Ralph wanted respect. The night clerk had none, just had that smirk. Ralph's head rang with the sharp sound of steel on steel. The auto plant had been closed a month now and Ralph could still hear the clanging from the line inside his head a constant reminder of the job he'd lost. And here's this $3.35 an hour Mawa motherfuck smirking at him. The gin, the wine, it confused things. Ralph was tired. Ralph was tired of a lot of things, of working too hard, of working too little, of working too hard for too little. Ralph was tired of being drunk. Ralph was tired of being confused. Ralph was tired of that fucking smirk. So Ralph pulled the trigger. He tore out of the store, raced downtown, blew a red light, and when he entered the club tip-top, the jukebox cut and the crowd hushed. What does a man do in that situation? A smart one puts his head down and stares into his beer. Ralph was supposed to meet the man there because it was out of the way, inconspicuous. A meeting not only on the other side of the river, but in the part of town where no one would recognize him. Unless you came barreling through the door like Ralph, with that wild stare. The one that dared everyone in the damn place to ask him what his fucking problem was. Because the way he looked, Ralph clearly had a problem. The man needed a driver. Ralph needed money just like the man did. But Ralph had other ideas. It was immediately confronted once he entered the bar. It was what he wanted. He wanted the confrontation. Ralph pulled his piece. He waved his gun around daring anyone in the joint to come for him. An off-duty cop got the drop on him from behind out in front of the club, and that was that. Ralph pulled Judge Brown, and the judge gave Ralph 98 and a year and called it even Johnny 99. The man got in his car, hit the turnpike, and headed north. New Jersey turnpike, at night. Wet, relentless rain. In the rear view, a state trooper just what the man needed. He played it cool. He was just a cop, and he was just a guy on the road. 
he kept his car at the edge of the speed limit and prayed to the Lord above that the trooper didn't run his plates. He just needed to get to the boardwalk. She was going to meet him there, and he was going to be early, but it didn't matter. His mind was made up. He wasn't going to do it. He couldn't do it. The job didn't matter how much he owed. He didn't know Rocco, and sure as the sun shined down on the swamps of Jersey, he didn't know Chicky. The two men who blew up the chicken man, but still, he couldn't push their buttons. He couldn't do the favor for the man. He saw what had happened to Ralph. Worse than Starkweather, Ralph wasn't going to the electric chair. He was going to prison for the rest of his life with nothing but the thoughts in his head. That was torture. The guilt of it all. How do you come back from that? That sealed it. He was out. Forget his debts. Forget the fact that he'd already agreed to do the thing. She would understand. She'd take that long ride. Out west. They'd go and never return. He had to. He had no other options. But you don't agree to do that kind of favor for that kind of man and then renege. He'd be as dead as the chicken man, Bruno Starkweather, and all the rest. So he drew what little he had from his account. It was enough for two Coast City bus tickets. Enough to get out of town. He'd figure out the rest later. He stared at the state trooper in the rear view. To calm himself, he thought about the man's life. Maybe he had a kid. Maybe he had a wife. Maybe he had a code. Rocco and Chicky didn't have a code. They were on the wrong side of that line. He had a code. He did. He couldn't kill. Even if he'd already agreed to. But what did that mean? What would his maker make of that? How would that go over in confession? Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I agreed to put a bullet in Rocco and another one in Chicky so as to make a brown paper bag full of cash to pay off my gambling debts, but Father, it's okay. I didn't do the damn thing. Thinking it and doing it weren't the same. But thinking you could do it, what did that mean? Who was he? What exactly was he capable of? What did he become? What if the trooper pulled him over? What would he do? His mind went hazy. He prayed, oh Lord, deliver me. Mr. State Trooper, please don't stop me. And the Lord was in a listening mood. The trooper peeled away at the next off-ramp. Sign said, Atlantic City, five miles from here. He drove on, but what had he done? What had he learned? He was going to do it, he was, he was set. It wasn't any moral revelation that stopped him. It was fear of getting caught. Fear of life alone behind bars with nothing but unbearable guilt. Total selfishness. He had no code. The code said, thou shall not kill. And he didn't, but he wasn't absolved. He was guilty of the thoughts in his head. Maybe not in a court of law, but in the eyes of his maker. And there was no forgiveness without penance. And there was no penance without sacrifice. He knew this. She knew this. He didn't deserve her. It was plain as day. He couldn't have her. Not now, at least. He needed to sort this out on his own. That was the solution. He'd leave her behind, and if she deemed him worthy over time, she'd come for him. That's the only way it could work. A man needs a code. Otherwise, the thoughts in his head turned to chaos. Salvation is a last-minute business, and he wasn't going to let it come down to that. Redemption stayed open all night. He wheeled his stolen car off the highway and headed toward the boardwalk. He parked across from a bus without estate plates near the promenade. He told her he'd be waiting in the Chevy with Nebraska plates. But now he wouldn't be. It was a necessary lie. One that could be easily forgiven. When she arrived, she'd get the message. One Coast City bus ticket on the driver's seat. A 
Texaco roadmap and a business card from the Sands Gold Motel out west. He was gone. And maybe she'd join him, if he was worthy. Either way, he'd saved himself from eternal disgrace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roller.